Section 18 of Bird Stories from Burroughs by John Burroughs. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jairus Amar. Bird Stories from Burroughs by John Burroughs. The Black Throated Blue Warbler. A search for a rare nest. I had set out in hopes of finding a rare nest, the nest of the black-throated, blue-backed warbler, which, it seemed, with one or two others, was still wanting to make the history of our warblers complete. The woods were extensive and full of deep, dark tangles, and looking for any particular nest seemed about as hopeless a task as searching for a needle in a haystack as the old saying is, where to begin and how. But the principle is the same as in looking for a hen's nest. First, find your bird, then watch its movements. The bird in these woods, for I have seen him scores of times, but whether he builds high or low, on the ground or in the trees, is all unknown to me. That is his song now with a peculiar summer languor and plaintiveness, and issuing from the lower branches and growths. Presently we, for I have been joined by a companion, discover the bird, a male, insecting in the top of a newly fallen hemlock. The black, white, and blue of his uniform are seen at a glance. His movements are quite slow compared with some of the warblers. If he will only betray the locality of that little domicile where his plainly clad mate is evidently sitting, it is all we will ask of him. But this he seems in no wise disposed to do. Here and there, and up and down, we follow him, often losing him, and as often refinding him by his song. But a clue to his nest, how shall we get it? Does he never go home to see how things are getting on? or to see if his presence is not needed, or to take madam a morsel of food. No doubt he keeps within earshot, and the cry of distress or alarm from the mother bird would bring him to the spot in an instant. Would that some evil fate would make her cry, then? Presently he encounters a rival. His feeding ground infringes upon that of another, and the two birds regard each other threateningly. This is a good sign, for the nests are evidently near. Their battle cry is a low, peculiar chirp, not very fierce, but bantering and confident. They quickly come to blows, but it is a very fantastic battle, and, as it would seem, indulged in more to satisfy their sense of honor than to hurt each other, for neither party gets the better of the other and they separate a few paces and sing, and squeak and challenge each other in a very happy frame of mind. The gauntlet is no sooner thrown down than it is again taken up by one or the other, and in the course of fifteen or twenty minutes they have three or four encounters, separating a little, then provoked to return again like two cocks, till finally they withdraw beyond hearing of each other, both no doubt claiming the victory but the secret of the nest is still kept. Once I think I have it, I catch a glimpse of a bird which looks like the female. 
and nearby, in a small hemlock about eight feet from the ground, my eye detects a nest. But as I come up under it, I can see daylight through it, and that it is empty, evidently only partly finished, not lined or padded yet. Now if the bird will only return and claim it, the point will be gained. But we wait and watch in vain. The architect has knocked off today, and we must come again or continue our search. Despairing of finding either of the nests of the two males, we push on through the woods to try our luck elsewhere. Before long, just as we are about to plunge down the hill into a dense swampy part of the woods, we discovered a pair of the birds we were in quest of. They had food in their beaks, and as we paused, showed great signs of alarm, indicating that the nest was in the immediate vicinity. This was enough. We would pause here and find this nest anyhow. To make a sure thing of it, we determined to watch the parent birds till we had wronged them from their secret. So we doggedly crouched down and watched them, and they watched us. It was diamond cut diamond. But as we felt constrained in our movements, desiring, if possible, to keep so quiet that the birds would, after a while, see in us only two harmless stumps or prostrate logs, we had much the worst of it. The mosquitoes were quite taken with our quiet, and knew us from logs and stumps in a moment. Neither were the birds deceived, not even when we tried the Indians' tactics, and plumed ourselves with green branches. Ah, the suspicious creatures, how they watched us with the food in their beaks, abstaining for one whole hour from ministering to that precious charge which otherwise would have been visited every few moments. Quite nearest they would come at times, between us and the nest, eyeing us so sharply. Then they would move off, and apparently try to forget our presence. Was it to deceive us, or to persuade himself and his mate that there were no serious cause for alarm, that the male would now and then strike up in full song and move off to some distance through the trees? But the mother bird did not allow herself to lose sight of us at all, and both birds, after carrying the food in their beaks a long time, would swallow it themselves. Then they would obtain another morsel and apparently approach very near the nest, when their caution or prudence would come to their aid, and they would swallow the food and hasten away. I thought the young birds would cry out, but not a syllable from them. Yet this was, no doubt, what kept the parent birds away from the nest. The clamor the young would have set up on the approach of the old with food would have exposed everything. After a time, I felt sure I knew within a few feet where the nest was concealed. Indeed, I thought I knew the identical bush. Then the birds approached each other again and grew very confidential about another locality some rods below. This puzzled us, and, seeing the whole afternoon might be spent in this matter, and the mystery unsolved, we determined to change our tactics and to institute a thorough search of the locality. This procedure soon brought things to a crisis, for, as my companion clambered over a log by a little hemlock, a few yards from where we had been sitting, with a cry of alarm, out sprang the young birds from their nest in the hemlock, scampering and fluttering over the leaves, 
disappeared in different directions. Instantly the parent birds were on the scene in an agony of alarm. Their distress was pitiful. They threw themselves on the ground at our very feet, and fluttered and cried and trailed themselves before us, to draw us away from the place, or distract our attention from the helpless young. I shall not forget the male bird, how bright he looked, how sharp the contrast as he trailed his painted plumage there on the dry leaves. Apparently, he was seriously disabled. He would start up as if exerting every muscle to fly away, but no use, down he would come, with a helpless, fluttering motion, before he had gone two yards, and apparently you only had to go and pick him up. But before you could pick him up, he had recovered somewhat and flown a little farther, and thus, if you were tempted to follow him, you would soon find yourself some distance from the scene of the nest, and both old and young well out of your reach. The female bird was not less solicitous, and practiced the same arts upon us to decoy us away, but her dull plumage rendered her less noticeable. The male was clad in holiday attire, but his mate in an everyday working garb. The nest was built in the fork of a little hemlock, about fifteen inches from the ground, and was a thick, firm structure, composed of the finer material of the woods, with a lining of very delicate roots or rootlets. There were four young birds and one addled egg. End of section 18. Recording by Jairus Amar.